Hey everyone, this is Blaine here with the History Hour on KZMU, and I am back with another episode. February 2024, second episode of the year. And I am amped up because I really want to talk to you guys about the history of the portal and what lies beyond the portal in the River Canyon. And for a place that probably was a mystery to a lot of residents of the Moab Valley, like a hundred years ago or more, there has been a lot of people that have been going down the portal (laughs) for a long time. And the history that lies beyond the portal, I mean, it dates all the way back to the indigenous people. It goes to the cowboys, uh, exploration, and mining. So I'd like to sort of get started out here with what is the portal? And this is something that I love to talk about on my tours when I am guiding people into the Island in the Sky District um, and I'm accessing the White Rim and I'm headed straight down Potash Road. So I'm headed right into the portal. And I tell them, this is the beginning of the Grand Canyon system. And sometimes they look at me like I have three heads. (laughs) So... um, before the days of bridges, dams, and boat ramps, I mean, you got to think about this. If you were in the Moab Valley and you get on a boat and you head straight into the portal, if you don't know your way off the side canyons, your next stop's the bottom of the Grand Canyon because you're basically surrounded by walls <laughs> from Moab to the bottom of the Grand. And this is a huge reason why the old Spanish trail came right through the Moab Valley going from Santa Fe, New Mexico, all about to Los Angeles. Uh, Even though that, according to journal entries, uh, they thought that the indigenous tribes below the Grand Canyon uh, were um, a little too hostile for them. There were all these explorations, basically starting with Escalante in 1776. And he actually came across the canyon system on his way back to Santa Fe when they sort of get down right at the base of the Sierras, and they said, yo, winter's coming. We're not going to be able to make it across the Sierras right now, Uh, so let's head on back to Santa Fe. They came right through where Lake Powell is now, and they etched some staircase. They etched a staircase in the rock. That way they'd get their horses down and across, and so that became known as the Crossing of the Fathers. But that's not the ideal spot to cross massive amounts of mules. So where can we do that? Where is the best separation in this canyon? Where's the next spot to safely cross the river, the Moab Valley? And so eventually by the 1820s, um, uh, they put all of these exploration maps together. Boom, we get the old Spanish trail coming right through here. Being, of course, another key evidence as to why I believe that the portal is the beginning of the Grand Canyon system. Also, I've got a, um, I'm going to share this on my Facebook page. So if you don't follow my Facebook page, uh, go to Facebook and look up um, Moab History Hour KZMU. Um, I have a newspaper clipping from, uh, it was an advertisement of the Lions Club. And there is this drawing of the portal and it says at the bottom, head of the Grand Canyon. And as I mentioned before, The early settlers here in the Moab Valley in the 1870s, um, 1880s, 1890s, what did they think about the portal? 
they probably found it to be a very mysterious thing, not really knowing where the river went. Yes, there were cowboys that were adventuring high up on top of the mesa, looking down at the river, um, up on the poison spider mesa, probably even the Moab Rim, accessing it from the Hidden Valley area. But as a whole, we have to stop and think about it. This area has been mapped out for thousands of years by the indigenous people. So that raises the question, how long have people been going down the portal on the river? Whether by boat or by foot on the banks or even accessing the river from a side canyon, well, we do know that there are a lot of archeological sites down the portal. So I just kind of want to talk a little bit about these archaeological sites. Uh, I have a USGS map from the 1950s. Um, and right at the very top of the Moab Rim, uh, where the portal begins, it says cliff dwellings. And I know a lot of locals, especially the old folks here, I'm sure they know of and remember the remnants of those cliff dwellings that are right there at the top of the Moab Rim. And even all the way down that canyon system, I mean, man, there are granaries, so many petroglyphs. That, I mean, there are thousands of petroglyphs down the river canyon. So I really want to hone in on these petroglyphs because I believe that the petroglyphs tell us the story of these indigenous people. The people that were leaving these petroglyphs, they were archaic. They date all the way back to 6000 BC, and then we see the Fremont culture coming in, you know, probably around 450 AD, going all the way up till about 1300 AD. So, this is the history that we have. And they pecked it right into the Wingate sandstone. So, I want to talk to you about some of these petroglyphs that I believe are telling the history of these people. Uh, one of those in particular is on the Wall Street panel on the Potash Road. Before I kind of get a little too into it, <laughs> disclaimer, this is simply my interpretation. I am not saying 100% this is what this is. This is my interpretation as a guide and as a historian. All right, so the petroglyph that is on the Wall Street panel that I want to talk about is a simple squiggly line. <laughs> When you look at it, you're just kind of like, all right, whatever, there's squiggly lines all over the place. However, this particular sort of squiggly line really caught my attention because of how much it matches the river. And I believe that it's perhaps maybe a map. So the line sort of starts from left and kind of goes to the right. And the line moves and meanders back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, kind of like the Meander Canyon. Then you see this big sort of a horseshoe shape like the gooseneck, and then it kind of keeps going, and then it stops. Then you see all of these straight lines going left, down, left, down, left, up, down, left, and coming all the way back to the beginning. So my interpretation is I believe that that was their map of the river. Where did it go and how to get back to the portal from way down the river? Um, looking at that, I believe that they were going just right all the way out to where you can see the white rim 
where it wraps around after the gooseneck and you're kind of under the white rim right there. Uh, that's kind of where I feel like that they were trekking their way back to the portal. And if you were on the river and all the river guys know this, there's a lot of archaeology down the river, especially in those off those side canyons. Even all the way down uh, near near the bottom of Lathrop Canyon, archaeology. And there's another petroglyph literally on that same wall, kind of down the road a little bit where the wall kind of wraps around and you can go around the wall and look up. And there's some petroglyphs like almost to eye level with you right there. There's the same exact squiggly line meandering back and forth, back and forth, boom, big horseshoe. <laughs> so I feel like they had this place mapped out for thousands of years. But why was it important to them? We got to think migration routes, hunting routes. You're not going to live where you hunt. I mean, we don't even do that today. The indigenous people didn't. They would have hunting parties that would go to certain areas and hunt and bring the food back. And speaking of hunting, desert bighorn sheep petroglyphs. If you listened to last month's episode, I talked about this with Brigham of Utah, and I was telling him that I did some research, and within the Four Corners region here, we've got about 90,000 documented petroglyphs, and roughly about 45% of them are desert bighorn sheep. So that tells us a lot about their relationship with this animal. This animal was probably sacred to them. This was their food. This was clothing for them. So obviously this animal had a lot of significance with them. And there's even one more petroglyph um, down there. You'll see a bunch of people holding hands like paper dolls. And if you look above it, probably a few feet, you'll see a smaller line of people holding hands like paper dolls. Right in the middle of these two lines, you'll see some little desert bighorn sheep. Perhaps, maybe, this is depicting a hunting scene. Were they corralling the bighorn sheep <laughs> somewhere near the portal? And even all the way down, like, okay, so you keep going. And there are petroglyphs, I mean, just all the way down Potash Road, even all the way up to the Poison Spider uh, trailhead. But there's this one where it's a bighorn sheep, and then there's a line going around this drawing of what looks like fins, like sandstone fins. And so I really like that one a lot, too, because I feel like that perhaps maybe uh, this was a story of them following a bighorn sheep herd, probably around the Behind the Rocks recreational area where there's a lot of fins. And if that was the case, then obviously they were accessing the river and they knew that they could get to the river from that area where there so happens to be a lot more petroglyphs <laughs> and evidence that they were there as well. So we're going to hop across the river here now. And uh, we've been on the Potash Road for a hot minute talking about these petroglyphs. So the petroglyphs at the beginning of Moonflower Canyon, absolutely gross with how much vandalism there is. I absolutely hate it so much. And even uh, the birthing rock all the way down King Creek. Uh, so seeing where these petroglyphs are placed really shows us how they were moving down the portal area. 
Now, I don't know if this was all just one generation of Archaix leaving this, but most likely not. Uh, was this one generation that had found their way down? I don't know. But what we do know is we got to look at the evidence that we have of people going down the portal area. And if you look really closely at these petroglyphs and use your imagination, maybe and perhaps you could figure out the story of these people down the portal. So long before all the roads got installed to get us down the portal today, there was a ranch down there and it belonged to Dr. J.W. Williams and we know it today as Williams Bottom Campground. He did not live at that ranch, but that's where he kept some livestock and uh, some horses and such. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Dr. J.W. Williams was the first official full-time doctor here in the Moab Valley. Uh, he got here in 1896, and he ended up becoming the father of Arches, 1929. And his son, Mitch Williams, started tag-along tours back in the mid-60s and was taking people all over the Canyonlands and even all the way down the river, Cataract Canyon and such. And his grandson, John Williams, is the founder and owner of Navtech Expeditions, which is still in existence today, and so happens to be the tour company that I guide for. So I'm going to read you an account that came from Mitch Williams a long time ago, and I found this information on the Moab Museum website. And Mitch Williams was asked about the river, the portal, and the Williams Bottom old ranch down there. And he said, my first time on the river was with my father. Uh, father was very good on the river. He had two ranches and one of them was difficult to reach by land. So he usually accessed it via the river. On land, it took two days on horseback over the red rocks and over the top. The trail came off of the red rocks and down to the river. Once you reached the river, you were actually below the ranch. So you had to follow the river, the river's bottom back up to the ranch. I went to the ranch on horseback with a cowboy friend of mine, Mr. Swanee Kirby, to check on his cows. I had been there with Dad and lots of other people by boat. Mother's brother, Uncle Roy, and Papa wanted to take a bull from the Moab Valley to Williams Bottom Ranch by boat. Papa told Roy he wanted to take the bull to the lower ranch and that he wanted Roy to come and help him. They had the bulls swim behind the boat. <laughs> Papa told Roy to row the boat while Papa took care of the bull. The problem was that the bull wanted to be in the boat. The bull kept swimming closer and closer to the boat. Papa stood up on the boat with a halter rope in one hand and a willow switch in the other. Uh, Papa whipped the bull on the nose when he got too close and the bull would back off. Roy was scared to death because he just knew the bull was going to get in the boat, but it never did. They got to the ranch with no trouble whatsoever. The ranch at Williams Bottom had an adobe house, a nice spring, and a rock cellar. It was a way for Papa to make money besides his medical work. He didn't live on the ranch, though. He lived in town to be available to his patients. The way they got the irrigation water to the ranch was with a, was, was with a paddle wheel. The river current turned the wheel, and the wheel brought the water to 
where it could run up the ditch and be used to water the crops. Every ranch in those days was also a farm. They had to they had to raise they had to raise hay and corn to feed the livestock in the winter time. That's that's what ranching was in those days. Raise crops in the summer to feed livestock in the winter. During the summer, the livestock would graze in the open range. And there is a really cool picture of uh, old Doc Williams sitting at that old ranch down there uh, with the river in the background. It's kind of a kind of one of those famous shots of Doc Williams. And there's even a photo of the old adobe house and the cellar and all that, um, I believe, on the museum website. So go check that out. But today, all those buildings and everything, uh, the ranch is just a distant memory. Um, that we have through those photographs. Uh, it's a really nice campground today. Um, it's absolutely beautiful down there. Uh, lots of big cottonwood trees uh, to camp out under and uh, you got a great view. I like to go down there and sort of try to figure out where that old building was, <laughs> where the spring was. I've, I've uh, personally gone down there and walked around and kind of climbed up on the rocks there. And uh, so it's just a really nice area. Uh, you can't help but uh, understand why <laughs> Doc Williams chose that as a spot to have a nice little ranch back in the day. Then we see around 1920s, 30s, people started going down the river. <laughs> I mean, you had uh, uh, Norm Nevels uh, going down Cataract Canyon way back in the day. And uh, there was a photo on the Moab Museum website of these guys in a boat. Um, it, it appears to be probably late 30s, early 40s, and it was the Corona Arch Photography Expedition. So we're starting to see people using the river to go into the portal more and more. It's becoming a more and more popular thing. And, you know, with the popularity of motorized boats, um, it really made it possible to enter the portal and go all the way down that canyon system as far as you wanted <laughs> and come right back up the same way you went. A really good example of this would be also from Mitch Williams. And he said that growing up in Moab was great with wonderful cliffs to climb and sloughs to raft. And uh, my friends and I built rafts before we were even old enough to raft the river. And we used them to fish for catfish in the sloughs. When we were in high school, the river was beckoning. I built a boat with two or three friends. Someone found an old car engine. Someone else found the drive line, and I, and I scrounged up some of Dad's lumber. Everyone brought what they had found, and we put it all together. We got the engine. We got the car engine running, uh, and we sought a lot of advice from the older people who knew the river and how to build a boat. We launched the boat in Mill Creek. The river was high, so Mill Creek made a good place to launch the boat for our first few trial runs. We finally launched the boat in the river. We went further and further with each trip until we got experience. And I absolutely love that story that we've got that documented uh, because, I mean, this guy and his family literally became legends on the Colorado River and still have that awesome legacy till this very day. So it's the early 1950s and cowboys have found their way down to the river from various areas, uh, from the island of Sky Mesa, um, uh, via Long Canyon, uh, the Schaefer Trail, um, Poison Spider Mesa, uh, you've got the Moab Rim, um, probably all the way out to Hoorah Pass. And you had people going down the river through the portal. And so 
1952, Charlie Steen strikes the largest deposit of uranium ever recorded here in Moab, and that sparked the uranium boom. And everything for the portal and down that canyon was about to change. All right, guys, so I'm going to take a real quick short music break here. And whenever we come back, we're going to be talking about uranium mining, potash, the Canyonlands controversy of the early 1960s. It's going to be great. Keep that dial right here on KZMU, and I will be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the History Hour here on KZMU. And if you are just now tuning in, we are talking about the portal and what lies beyond it. And so I have already covered indigenous history, a little cowboy history here and there, um, a little bit of boating. But now we're going to be talking about mining, uranium mining, potash. So it basically all started in 1952 when Charlie Steen struck the Mavita mine just south of town. It was like a bomb went off here. Talk about a frenzy. Uh, I've heard uh, some documentary of the old folks. They were saying that town literally like quadrupled in size. And there was guys going out all over the place looking for uranium. They were looking for these petrified stream beds in the red rock out here. And what better place to find that than down the portal when you get to the Moenkopi layer in the Canyonlands region. And they absolutely flooded the region with jeep trails. I mean, going all the way down Cane Creek. Uh, there, are there are slews of mines all the way down there. They were going all the way down today's Potash Road. Uh, they, were, they built the Schaefer Trail. They built the White Rim. They were just all over the place out there, even all the way down Mineral Bottom. I mean, there wasn't a place that there was not a uranium prospector back in the early 50s. So now we have literally penetrated and breached the portal and we are out there and the world truly does not know what it looks like from the ground level down the portal. I mean, the, yeah, the uranium miners are out there. I mean, but like, think about it. Like they're out there looking for money. They're not out there for the scenic, you know, <laughs> grandeur of the Canyonlands. Uh, they're out there trying to make money and look for their riches. Everyone wanted to be the next Charlie Steen. And yeah, we had lots of millionaires here in Moab that made their fortune off of the uranium boom. Um, but Charlie Steen so happened to be, you know, the loudest one <laughs> and the main guy, of course, the, being the king of uranium, as he was called. It was estimated that throughout the 1950s, Moab had over 500 uranium mines. Where are we going to process all of that uranium? Well, today we know it as the Umtra site, and it used to be the Atlas Mill that had closed in the mid-80s. But before it was the Atlas Mill, it was like Charlie Steen's <laughs> main spot back in the 50s and he ended up selling it to the Atlas Mill Company in uh, 1962. But that area has become so radioactive with radium and even though all the uranium was pulled out of the rock, I mean those tailing piles just kept piling up and piling up over, over some decades and uh, just contaminating the earth underneath of it. 
So a lot of this uranium was being pulled out from down the portal area in various locations, um, all the way down Cane Creek and the Potash area on both sides of the river. They were out there. And this was going on mostly all throughout the 1950s. And according to GrandCountyUtah.net, uh, the U.S. Department of Energy has removed more than 88.1% of the estimated 16 million tons of uranium tailings from the banks of the Colorado River near the city of Moab to a permanent disposal site 32 miles north near Crescent Junction. This project is called the Moab Uranium Mill Tailings Remedial Action Project, also known as UMTRA. The Moab Tailings Project site is located in the northern Moab Valley northwest of Moab in Grand County, Utah, and includes the former Atlas Minerals Corporation uranium ore processing facility. The site is situated on the west banks of the Colorado River at the confluence of with Moab Wash. The site encompasses about 480 acres, of which approximately 130 acres is covered by the uranium mill tailings pile. So we are seeing these lasting effects, basically, <clears throat> from the uranium days of the 1950s right there at the portal. But I also want to go back to the Jeep trails themselves down the portal. Um, after the uranium days were over, I mean, you got you got these, the, these guys that say, hey, look at these roads. We've got the Jeeps left over from the uranium days. Let's start some tourism. So then... Uh, old Len Ottinger uh, started his famous scenic tours and his uh, Volkswagen buses. And then you had Mitch Williams uh, doing his tag-along tours out there as well. And all these other guys started to promote tourism because of these old uranium mining roads that we had access to get us out there to show the world what it looked like beyond the portal. But the main road today that gets us down the portal is the potash road. So what is potash? Potash is a potassium containing salt used widely by farmers in fertilizing. And according to observatory.nasa.gov, uh, most potash forms in arid regions when inland seas or lakes dry out. As the water evaporates, it leaves behind potassium salt deposits. Over geological time, sediment buries these deposits and they become potash ore. The ore at Moab, which actually lies about 3,900 feet below the surface and within the Paradox Formation, began to form about 300 million years ago. In Utah, the miners pump water deep underground to reach the potash ore. Potash is soluble, so water dissolves it into a brine. That brine gets pumped into underground caverns where the potash continues to dissolve. Eventually, a highly concentrated brine is pumped all the way to the surface and into one of the evaporation ponds. As the water evaporates, potash and other salt crystallize out. The evaporation process typically takes about 300 days. The water is dyed bright blue to reduce the amount of time it takes for potash to crystallize. Darker water absorbs more sunlight and heat. The crystals of potash and salt are then sent to a facility to be separated through a flotation process. 
In 2013, the United States produced about 970,000 metric tons of potash, about 2% of global production. The fertilizer industry consumed about 85% of the potash produced by the United States. The chemical industry used about the rest. About 60% of the U.S. potash was a murat type produced here in Moab. So that's how they do it today. And they have been doing that way since 1964. They basically had a series of elevators that would take men down there and they would break it up and haul it back up to the surface. Um, but 1963 disaster struck. There were 20 men down there that day. And someone struck, I believe, sort of a natural gas pocket. Um, and of course, all their oil lanterns and lamps, they were used by flames. So this massive explosion happened and 18 men died and only two guys survived. And that was sort of a uh, defining day in Moab. Everybody that day lost somebody here. Um, whether it was a brother or father or even just a friend, somebody lost somebody in that disaster that struck down at the potash mine. And of course, after that, and of course, it, that was deemed unsafe to go all the way down there. Uh, so they developed the system that we use today with the pumping process and the evaporation ponds. Mining really made it difficult <laughs> for Canyonlands to become a national park. Um, I'm going to do a whole episode on just this alone, but I'm going to sort of touch on it just a little bit right now. Uh, the Canyonlands controversy of the early 1960s. Uh, should we mine other minerals or should we mine tourism? The cowboy days and especially the uranium days really opened up the door for Bates Wilson to really get in there. And uh, uh, I did an amazing series um, where I, I interviewed his children, uh, Tug and Cindy and Julie and other people that knew him best. Um, I did that last year. Uh, so uh, go check it out um, if you want to hear a lot about what he did to get Canelands to become a national park from the ones who knew him best. He was the main advocate for Canelands National Park. I mean, starting I mean, in the late 50s, just really falling in love with the place. And guys were already jeeping out in the maze, and they were out jeeping in the needles, and obviously they were still jeeping right there on the White Rim. But Bates really saw these places as something super spectacular that needed to be protected. And so did Stuart Udall, who was over the interior back then. He remembers taking a flight over the Canyonlands region and looking down. He was right above the confluence and he saw the dollhouse. He saw Chesler Park and he said, my gosh, that's a national park. So they were really advocating for a national park, but the BLM did not want a national park. They wanted to hold on to that land because they might be able to mine other resources. And there were still a lot of areas where they could free-range cattle. So that's where the nickname Bates came up with for the BLM was the Bureau of Livestock and Mining, <laughs> which I'm kind of a personal fan favorite of that nickname there. 
And the early proposal of a national park was absolutely massive. It was over twice the size as the park is today. And so one of these early maps that I saw, it described what basically was agreed upon uh, by, um, a, by a cook who was over the BLM here in Utah. And it basically had the park boundary lines right at the portal. In fact, this park was supposed to be so big that it was going to include the island in the sky, um, the maze, the needles, the rivers, the bear's ears, the Glen Canyon. I mean, the whole shebang down here in southeast Utah. But obviously, we see that that didn't happen. You know, we're left with the four districts of the park. Uh, island in the sky, maze, needles, and the river district. But one can't help but to wonder, what if we were to get the park that Bates Wilson was proposing back then? I mean, the park would basically, the entrance would be at the portal. That would have been the entrance to Island in the Sky, most likely. And who knows? Maybe that would have all been paved. Maybe the White Rim would be paved by now with that being a popular entrance. Maybe the Schaefer Trail would be paved also. And also remember, they were already mining potash. So you can't really mine, you can't mine in a national park, so that would have had to have been dismantled. So you've got all these different facets running together and colliding to form this huge controversy of the Canyonlands, which is a very huge and very deep political subject. Um, I'm currently doing a lot of research on that. I've got old material, I've got new material. I've got stories from people, I've got recordings from people, so it's going to be a really great episode, so be looking forward to that in the future. At the same time that we've got all this Canyonlands controversy going on here, where the park boundary lines are basically supposed to be at the portal, um, they were making the Potash Road an official sort of highway. That's when they started to pave it, was in 1962. It was supposed to be the entrance up to Dead Horse Point. And according to one online resource, it says that the State Road Commission approved a new state route in 279 in 1960, connecting what is now 191 northwest of Moab with Dead Horse Point State Park. The route would be mostly new construction following the right northwest bank of the Colorado River to Day Canyon, where it would climb up the southwest onto the plateau containing the park. Within the park, an existing roadway, then its, its primary access road would become part of, of SR 279. The state legislator approved this highway in 1961. Later that year, the commission added a second route, State Route 278, that would continue south alongside the river from 279 to the, to, the San, to the Grand San Juan County line. However, when it approved the addition in 1963, the legislation made it part of 279. Renumbering the spur to the park through Day Canyon as SR 278. In addition, the south end of 279 was changed to Potash, a point north of the county line where the Texas Gulf Sulphur Company was building, was building a potash plant. 279 was soon built, but the, but the road through Day Canyon was constructed in 1975. The legislature deleted 278 in favor of 
313, which followed the existing county road to Dead Horse Point State Park through the Seven Mile Canyon. In 1963, Parade Magazine held the third of an annual competition for most scenic highway that opened to traffic that year. SR 279 was one of four finalists in that competition. Everybody can kind of keep that history alive of what has happened and what is currently happening down the portal. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Uh, if you guys are not following me on Facebook, Moab History Hour KZMU. Uh, you can stay up to date on all the episodes that I'll be coming out with. And you can also stay up to date on the History Hour episodes on KZMU social media, Facebook and Instagram. Well, guys, that was such a good time. Thank you so much for coming along with me down the portal and looking at all the awesome history that lies down there. And join me next month, the last Monday of March, right here on KZMU.